0: Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing three high profile events. First, the news of the record civil settlement between George Floyd's estate and the city of Minneapolis that broke during jury deliberations during Derek Chauvin's criminal trial. Second, Vanessa Bryant, spouse and widow of Kobe Bryant, has won the right to publicize the names of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies who took photos of Kobe Bryant and his child's remains. Third, the coroner report issued in the homicide of Casey Goodson reveals he was shot multiple times in the back by Deputy Meade here in Columbus, Ohio. During segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring the different types of forensic testing that is completed in sexual assault investigations. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the law office of brianjones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, the city of Minneapolis has reached a historic 27 million-dollar settlement in the lawsuit filed over George Floyd's death.
1: Wow. I mean, yes, I did. I thought it was absolutely um, amazing. Do you think that this announcement um, about the civil case will affect the prosecution of a criminal case? It's just weird timing.
0: It is a little suspicious in the timing especially with as much difficulty as they were having getting jurors who didn't have uh, previously formed opinions about this case. Now defense counsel for Derek Chauvin has stated multiple times that the timing and choice of the city to hold an hour long press conference about this settlement and to do so during jury selection Mm -hmm. is suspicious and unfortunate in his words. Now, Counsel for the George Floyd family has noted that this has been one of the most high profile cases over the last 12 months, and the video of George Floyd's death has been seen literally around the world. So it's doubtful that the news of a settlement that I think everybody knew was coming would really draw any more publicity to this case than there already was. Considering that local media around the Midwest and in particular Minneapolis has been covering this trial in real time and offering breaking news alerts, I think it would be difficult to elevate this case's profile in the news with anything, let alone a settlement that I think everybody knew was already coming down the pipe. The way to respond to these concerns, uh, as far as Derek Chauvin is concerned, is to put them on the record and continuing questioning jurors about what they know.
1: I mean, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, some people are saying, some legal observers are saying that this could be grounds for an appeal if there happens to be a conviction. Do you agree with this?
0: Well, this could be grounds for appeal. The judge wearing a blue shirt on the third day of trial could be grounds for appeal. Uh, Juror number four sneezing on the sixth day of trial could be grounds for appeal. So these uh, legal pundits, as they're called, are making some really out there on the far reaches of the limb speculative uh, opinion offerings there, Erica. uh, I think the real question, probably the better question, the more accurate legal question to be asking here is, are the right questions being asked by the panel of Derek Chauvin's attorneys and the prosecutors? And are they making the record and preserving the answers that are being given uh, by these potential jurors in regards to the pre-trial p- publicity? You publicity? Know, can something be grounds for appeal? Absolutely. Will this be uh, the issue that overturns a, a conviction, boy, I really wouldn't want the rest of my life hanging on that thread if I were Derek Chauvin. This will provide um, an avenue for appeal because an appellate court will consider all of the pleadings, all of the trial transcripts and everything that's happened, including what's happening right now during voir dire. and things like news articles and social media posts um, will not be considered on appeal unless they are made specifically a part of the record. So it's it's going to be on Derek Chauvin's uh, defense team to put that information into the record there during the voir dire process um, and through motions. Um, I'm not seeing any of that happening right now. So either this is all a red herring that they're putting out there to try and um, you know, kind of self limit, because they know they're going to lose this trial, they've got some fear, they're going to lose this trial. Um, or it, it's just, you know, putting out there whatever they can, um, you know, to try and stir the pot and get any sort of public sentiment that could possibly available, be available out there on their side.
1: I mean, it It makes it interesting when there's so much publicity. Do you think that that is going to be a major issue with this trial?
0: I don't think the publicity itself is going to be an issue in this trial. I think the issue that really we should be talking about is what are the jurors' preconceived notions and what are the lawyers involved in this trial doing to uh, either get jurors to set those preconceived notions aside or work within those preconceived notions to reach the result that that particular side wants. I, I think there's, there are going to be jurors that say Derek Chauvin needs to be drug out into the town square and flogged publicly. There are going to be jurors that are going to say Derek Chauvin needs to be brought out into the Times Square and awarded a medal it's going to be the jurors that are in the middle that make the decisions in this case. And identifying who those jurors are is the obligation of all of the attorneys that are involved in this case.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts as everything unwinds from this particular case. I know there's gonna be a lot of changes coming up that we'll wanna hear about.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that pretrial publicity can be managed effectively, but it requires diligence and it requires an upfront plan to capture, preserve, and submit the evidence of the pretrial publicity in order to support whatever motions or requests for change of venue, sequestration of the jury, housing them away in a hotel during the course of the trial, delaying the trial, or even um, overturning a verdict and getting a mistrial declared. All of those avenues are available here, but what you don't hear are any of the defense attorneys or any of the prosecuting attorneys uh, pursuing these legal avenues that are available. So it really, it really feels like they're playing the PR game just as much as anybody else and then crying foul when it's used against them. Erica, did you see in the news this week as well, however, that Vanessa Bryant has now won the right to publicize the names of the LA Sheriff's deputies who took photos of Kobe and his daughters following their fatal helicopter crash last year.
1: I mean, I'll say about that, I did not realize that that happened. And it's shocking to me that the police and fire departments and and any of those people that are first responders there to help out in a situation would be so unprofessional as to take selfies and pictures of the bodies and then share them around. I I mean, it's, I, I didn't realize that she would have a case for that. Can you can you uh, let us in on what grounds Mrs. Bryant would have to bring this suit? I mean, other than it being just completely terrible.
0: Yeah, it's called aggravated being a disgusting human being. Um, But more specifically on legal terms, she sued under the 14th Amendment uh, because that applies the United States Code, uh, the Civil Rights Statute, uh, 42 United States Code, 1983, Um, to the states. So she's suing on a negligence and an invasion of privacy action under 14 U.S.C. 1983. Now, you may recall the revelation that the helicopter crash scene where Kobe and his daughter uh, unfortunately lost their lives, as well as numerous others that were in the helicopter, as well as the pilots, uh, were violated by the sheriff's deputies who were first on the scene the sheriff's deputies were snapping photos of the deceased body and sharing them with their fellow law enforcement officers. These low-lifes also shared the photographs um, among the various departments, including the fire department with their friends and with random bartenders and people that they ran into in the community. So these are the legal and factual bases of uh, Vanessa Bryant's lawsuit. I mean,
1: it's just really pathetic honestly. So, I mean, they, they claim uh, that they need to keep their identity secret. Why did they feel like they had the option to do that as defendants?
0: So, Joey Cruz, Rafael Mejia, Michael Russell, and Raul Versailles are the named officers now listed in the complaint and publicly available that wanted their names and identities hidden they wanted to keep their names hidden because they claimed they were scared that they might get hacked or have their uh, phones uh, hacked in order to steal the images. Now the civil rights attorneys involved argued that the request was without precedent. And I have not been able to find a single situation uh, where this has ever been allowed. And the judge in this case agreed that this has never been allowed before and will not be allowed in this case. Um, The judge rejected their motion and the amended complaint with the officers' names was filed officially.
1: So why would the sheriff's department and the fire departments be included in this lawsuit?
0: So the allegations include a pattern or practice allegation under the 1983 section. So what Vanessa and Kobe's estate are claiming is that uh, when the sheriff learned of the photos, and learned that more than 100 photos were circulating, he told the department that anybody who came forward and deleted their photos would suffer zero discipline, zero consequences for this disgusting behavior. He failed to report the violation to internal affairs, and there was never an investigation started until the news broke that the photos existed. Similar allegations have been made against the LA County Fire Department for its failure to address similar instances of sharing the photos. It's horrifying to imagine being the victim of such a traumatic event and having to watch police officers arrive on scene and take selfies with your husband and child's corpses. It's a gross violation of department policy, procedure, and minimal standards of decency. And the way to make a permanent change in this case is through a lawsuit and public scrutiny. I, for one, hope that these officers suffer every bit of comeuppance that they deserve.
1: I mean, I agree with you. If anything, it's gonna make an example of them and hopefully any situation like this that might be happening across the country on a lower end with less famous people will be cleared up because they will see that it's actually something you can be sued for. And the embarrassment of the public knowing what you're doing and being so unprofessional will hopefully keep others from doing this in the future.
0: Yes, let's hope that future law enforcement officers don't take selfies with the corpses that they're investigating. In other news, Erica, did you see that the coroner's report was released in the investigation of the murder of Casey
1: Goodson Jr.? I did see that and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it because I know there's a lot of analysis going on in the reports and it's gonna be interesting to see how this changes the case. So why is the coroner's report important to the death investigation that we're talking about here? So when law enforcement
0: investigates a death, they only have circumstantial evidence to rely upon in making determinations about how the person died um, and you know, so the manner and cause of death. Uh, you can see a hole in a body, but that's indicative of a bullet going through the body. It is not direct evidence of a bullet going in the body, unless you actually see that bullet in the body, or you can see the harm, the trauma that the bullet caused and and identify how it spread through the body, you only have circumstantial evidence of that. The coroner, or in some locations, the medical examiner's job, is to conduct an in-depth, full contact, external and internal examination of a deceased's body in order to determine not just what caused the end of life, but other factors that contributed to it as well. Coroners and medical examiners practice just like the law is a practice, and different doctors can reach different conclusions about the manner and cause of death. And just a quick reminder here for everybody cause of death is the specific injury or disease that leads to the death, the manner of death is the the determination of how that injury leads to death there are five manners of death natural accidental suicidal homicidal and undetermined
1: and thank you so much brian for telling us about the difference between cause and manner because i know most of us are getting our information from csi or (laughs) any of the other shows on tv (laughs) and we hear these terms thrown out there here and there but there was no one intelligent like yourself to explain it. So we appreciate that. And along those lines, can you talk to us about trajectory? You mentioned that, tell us about the cause and the manner of the death and how how trajectory comes into play.
0: So in this particular case, the the cause of death was gunshot wounds to the torso. And the manner of death was ruled to be a homicide. Homicide is the death of a human by the hands of another human. Now that can, not all homicides are murders, but all murders are homicides. So we get that straight. Of the six gunshot wounds Mr. Goodson suffered, none of them showed any evidence of soot or stippling. That's uh, soot, just like what you would see Um, you know, in your chimney or on your fire pits, the black uh, kind of almost powdery ash, stippling is uh, specific little bits of um, gunpowder that can can fly out of the muzzle, the barrel of, of a firearm. Now, if you have soot and stippling, that means that a gunshot came from a distance of less than four feet away, between six and less than six and four feet away. So what we know here is that these gunshots were fired more than four feet away. The trajectory of the bullets or the path that the bullet took through the body and then came into contact with tissue and bone is used to determine the distance and angle at which the bullet entered the body. These physical dimensions can't be altered other than through decomposition. And that's not a factor in this particular case. So they're very useful in determining where and how a firearm was shot by tracing bullet trajectories. Now, our office has used bullet trajectory in a, in a murder trial about four years ago um, where we were able to prove and convince a jury that the version of events given by a J. Hall snitch was impossible due to the coroner's report and the, the trajectory of the bullets through a particular decedent's body. Um, you know, trajectory can tell us so much about where the decedent was, what position the decedent was in as the bullets were passing through his body or her body um, and the position of the person that fired those bullets as well.
1: So that's very interesting, Brian. Thank you so much for, for letting us in on that. And um, it's, it's interesting to see how the science is really going to show us whether the story is the way that the police officer said it was because he felt threatened, but if he's shooting somebody in the back, how threatened was he really? So, and the guy was holding a bunch of sandwiches. It's, it seems like such a big lie. Um, Now, is it significant that the report was released by the family's attorney?
0: I think it is. And I think it's significant in a variety of ways. First. While there is a federal investigation into the homicide of Mr. Goodson, there is no state investigation because the sheriff's department covered this up for so long that Ohio BCI didn't feel comfortable investigating the case. So there's no concurrent independent state investigation going on at this time. There have been no charges filed against the deputy who shot Casey Goodson. And that that deputy continues to maintain that Mr. Goodson, a lawful carry concealed weapons holder, brandished and waved this gun at at him, uh, despite the fact that every witness testified that, or I guess gave statements, that he was carrying uh, an armload of Subway sandwiches. Now the trajectory information is critical because the proper modeling of these injuries will reveal how the body moved as it suffered these hits. So it'll allow third parties to put together this story in a way that local authorities honestly covered up and tried to hide. Um, you know, The family obviously believes that this coroner's report is indicative and supportive of the narrative that Casey Goodson was murdered and that this, this was not a shooting in self-defense uh, by the deputy that was involved in it. The renewed attention that this case is going to get through this explosive news that confirms these shots through Mr. Goodson's back Hopefully, we'll push uh, federal officials in their investigation and get this uh, murderous cop off the streets.
1: I mean, I hope so. It's a really scary situation when you have people like that working for the police department that are supposed to be there to help you, and they're just trigger happy.
0: I think you're absolutely right, Erica. We've we've got to get these trigger happy cops off of the streets. They, they should not be in positions of authority. Um, and let's hope that the forensics in this case uh, help achieve that goal. Speaking of forensics, Erica, we hear a lot about rape kits and DNA testing as it applies to sexual assault investigations and the trials of those allegations. But what about cases where there is no DNA present or where the central issue is consent rather than identity? that is where other types of forensic analysis become relevant and that is the subject of our deep dive this week erica let's talk about forensic testing in sexual assault cases
1: yeah i mean this is another really interesting topic and it goes along with what we were talking about recently um now Can you let us in on what other types of forensics testing are used in a sexual assault investigation?
0: So there's trace evidence, hair, fiber, glass, paint, soil, any other stuff that can be around or used to identify a place or someone being in a particular location. Toxicology, um, the study of substances in the body that can reveal the use of date rape drugs such as rohypnol or other drugs that cause impairment like alcohol or um, MDMA. Serology is the testing of body fluids that may or may not have sufficient DNA for testing, but can be used to identify the presence of substances that are created by the body, such as amylase, which comes from sweat, semen, vaginal fluids, or even, you know, breast milk. Uh, cell phone and digital forensics, cell phone data technology, location data, car history, cell phone GPS, um, internet IP address, and social media history can all be used to identify Um, where a person was, when a person was in that location, um, and can establish patterns and connections between accusers and the accused. Impression and pattern evidence, such as fingerprints and shoe prints, tire marks and handwriting, can further be used to place individuals at a particular location or exclude individuals from a particular location. A recent study showed that in addition to DNA, fingerprints and hair are the most common types of physical evidence collected in sexual assault exams. And as far as um, you know, more atypical forensic analysis, the polygraph, a law enforcement standard in many countries um, is generally better available to detect knowledge rather than deception through the CIT test, which is used to detect knowledge rather than the CQT test, which is more used to to detect deception, and is the more frequently used type of test um, by law enforcement officers.
1: I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) There's so many things to consider uh, with these cases, and thank you so much for that very long list of of things that seem like there's a lot of moving parts so there's a lot of things that could possibly go wrong too Um, but i do have a quick question for you Um, why are polygraphs considered forensics investigation tools if forensic science is about admissible evidence so forensic
0: scientists collect preserve and analyze evidence during the course of an investigation Forensic science is at its core, the use of scientific methods during the crime solving process. This includes the use of psychology through things like polygraph exams and and other types of psychological tools. Now, not all science that is used in a case is presented or even admissible at trial, but that doesn't mean the science can't be used to prevent a prosecution or secure a favorable plea offer for the accused person. Creative and dynamic defense attorneys will use any discipline and any tool available to protect the rights of their clients. Now, would I ever want or, or allow willingly a polygraph examination to come into evidence at trial? No, I don't, think, I don't foresee that happening. They're generally inadmissible. Does that mean a lot of law enforcement officers and prosecutors don't think that they are reliable and, and usable? No, they absolutely do. And if I can get my client to submit to a polygraph and that polygraph shows that they're being honest when they say that they didn't commit the offense, I'm absolutely going to use that to my client's benefit in any way that I can.
1: I mean, it sounds like kind of a behind the scenes barometer for whether or not the person committed the crime or not. And if it doesn't go well, it it sounds like you get a get out of jail free card, or maybe not. (laughs) But uh, either way, they they don't have to submit that. So I guess, what's the harm in in using it? Um, Why is it important to fully investigate any forensics report in a sexual assault investigation? So
0: science is supposed to be subjected to peer review, except the government's forensic science. There are multiple tests that the state has designed for itself to be used by itself in a laboratory that it runs that no one else in the world uses or, or runs itself. Think about it. When, when the tenants of peer review accreditation and submission to a set of standards are are thrown out the window, science is no longer science. This is now, uh, you know, children experimenting with baking soda and peroxide um, in in mommy's kitchen. Now, that's not to say that Bureau of Criminal Identification and and FBI labs and, and state crime labs aren't accredited institutions. They are. It's only to say that it's not subject to the same level of peer review that a variety of other institutions are. Private institutions have a much higher level of of peer review testing um, and accreditation. Uh, Institutions such as universities, much higher level of, of review and accreditation. Independent analysis by expert witnesses outside of the government's crime lab is always useful, even if it's just an exercise in educating the attorney on the specifics of the procedures of that particular forensic science areas such as handwriting and fingerprint analysis have come under immense scrutiny recently for their lack of repeatability and their genuine unreliableness in the scientific processes. You know, in in science, I should be able to run an experiment and write down everything I did and then hand my notes to you and you do the things that I did and you should get the same result that I did. That's the standard that science holds itself to. But in these crime labs, if I write down everything that I do and hand my notes to you and you come up with a different result, that's OK to them. Now, for any other scientist in the world, that's absolutely unacceptable. But for some reason, when we're talking about putting people in cages. That's a good enough standard. And that's the reason defense attorneys need to understand the science and conduct their own independent investigations to determine when the science is and when it's not reliable. Knowing the science and knowing the language to speak with the experts and to speak with the forensic analysts will give the defense attorney an advantage both in negotiations with the prosecutors and in using those witnesses to inform the jury of the flaws in the prosecution's case and enhance and move forward the defense story throughout the trial process.
1: I mean, that's really why people need to hire you if they have a problem because you know the background, you know the strategies, you know what to do and you know what to look out for. I mean, not everybody has the checklist of what needs to be done and has the experience to know what can go wrong and what to avoid if you wanna have a successful case.
0: Eric, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And that is one of the hallmarks of our office. You know, We pride ourselves on knowing the science. And if we don't know the science, and learning the science for our our clients' cases. Um, I I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a courtroom or called a prosecutor up and explained the science to them, not really advocating for my client in any way, just explaining to them what went on for them to turn around and say, "Um, do you want this fantastic plea offer for your client? Because I have no idea what's going on, but it sounds like you do. And I'm kind of scared about the fact that you know what's going on and I don't know what's going on. Using that to our client's advantage uh, is is incredibly effective. I appreciate you engaging in this discussion with me today, Erica, and to everybody out there that's watched and listened, thank you for joining us as well. To keep informed about how the government is expanding the criminal code, um, hiding evidence, and and taking selfies with the unfortunate victims of traffic and, and airplane accidents, make sure you continue to follow our show, Um, let's hold the government and police accountable and follow the law office of brianjones.com and our social media channels to get the word out about these tragedies and about how the government is violating your civil rights and how the criminal injustice system grinds people up and spits them out. We're gonna be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news as well as a discussion of the importance of jury selection in cases involving minors as the complaining witness. Now, Erica, when I separated and I went my way away from my grandfather, he would always tell me, son, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, I add to my friends, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights
1: because I'd want mine defended.